Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. For my first episode of True Crime and Nick, I explored the case of the Grim Sleeper, an L.A. serial killer who notoriously targeted poor black women and girls because he knew that their disappearances would go unnoticed by authorities. Many of you were surprised and disturbed by the fact that the story of these victims were relatively unknown and untold. Today, we will explore another case of missing and murdered African-American women and girls that also went untold for decades until only a few years ago. So grab your knitting or your vice of choice and join me while we try to unpack why we never heard of Samuel Little. My name is Sophia Talley and this is True Crime In It. In 2012, 72-year-old Samuel Little was arrested by a homeless shelter in Kentucky on a narcotics charge. Samuel was your definition of a career criminal, and his record dates back to as far as 1956. Besides having substance abuse issues, Samuel's record includes shoplifting, fraud, solicitation, and breaking and entering. He had a history of violent behavior. In 1982, he was arrested for the murder of 22-year-old Melinda Rose Lepree in Mississippi, but was found not guilty. In 1982, he was trialed again for the brutal murder of 26-year-old Patricia Ann Mount in Florida. But the only evidence that they had was witness testimony, which was just not enough to convict him for murder. In 1984, he was arrested yet again for the beating and kidnapping and attempted strangulation of 22-year-old Lori Barrows. But Lori lived. Police were able to catch up with him a month later when they found him in the same location that Lori's attack took place with a woman in his car who was beaten and strangled, but who was luckily also still alive. Samuel was found guilty for both assaults and served two years in prison, two years for brutal assaults. So yes, I'm going to stop here because there's a lot to unpack. From 1982 to 1984, Samuel was trialed for the suspicion of murder for two women and was then tried for the attempted murder for two more women. Just for more context here. All these women were white, and for the most part, they all lived on the outskirts of society. Melinda was addicted to drugs and was being sexually exploited by her boyfriend. Patricia was mentally disabled and an alcoholic who met Samuel at a juke joint that she frequented in Gainesville. And Lori Burroughs was a sex worker. All these women were in vulnerable positions, and Samuel knew this and took advantage of this. The problem, though, for Samuel was that these women were white. Missing white women syndrome was a term coined by black journalist Gwen 
Ethel in 2004 during a conference panel where she says, I call it the missing white woman syndrome. If there is a missing white woman, you're going to cover that every day, end quote. And when she said that, the room just applauded because all of these journalists who worked in the industry knew that what she was saying was true. And and in relation to the case of these four victims, all of their cases went to trial fairly quickly. Justice was served in the sense that he went to trial for each of these cases. They just failed when he only walked away with two years. But Samuel didn't just walk away from jail two years later with nothing. Oh, no. Samuel walked away with special intel. And that was missing white women get noticed. And after his release in 1987, Samuel laid low as far as the law was concerned. But the bodies just never stopped piling up. In the summer of 1987, on July 13th, LAPD was called to investigate a dead body that was found in an alley behind a home on East 27th Street. Upon closer inspection, police found that the body was of a black woman who was naked from the waist down. The autopsy revealed that the woman, who was later identified by her daughter as Carol Eileen Elford, was a victim of manual strangulation and blunt force trauma to the head that was consistent to being punched in the head. Carol's case did not receive the attention that it deserved, neither by police, media, or even her community. And there were more and more strangled bodies of women being found across the country. On August 14th, 1989, the body of 35-year-old Audrey Nelson Everett was found in a dumpster in downtown LA. Later that month, the body of Rose Evans was found strangled in Cleveland, Ohio on August 24, 1991. That next month, on September 3rd in 1989, the body of 46-year-old Guadalupe Duarte Apodaca was found inside a LA commercial garage. Interestingly enough, Rose Evans was the only one out of the woman mentioned who had a news article written about her that was actually preserved by time. But another interesting fact was that her story was mentioned alongside another strangled woman. And both these strangulations took place in Cleveland. And though the woman wasn't named in this article, just from doing research, I believe the victim was Mary Jo Payton. And the police at the time did not find a connection between the two murders. And the public was worried and figured that, you know, these two strangulation amongst what other bodies that were popping up in the area may have been connected. And at the time, it was actually called a John problem, which is John is just slang for a man who hires prostitutes. And the public began to think that maybe there was a John out there who was abusing these prostitutes. And the police just didn't see this as a problem. It's just so sad because when is a trail of strangled women not a problem? Denise Christie brother's body was found on February 2nd, 1994 in a Coca-Cola bottling company parking lot by an employee in 
Odessa, Texas. He actually thought that it was a mannequin at first. And we hear about this a lot when someone finds someone deceased, especially when the body is tossed somewhere. They just assume it's like a store mannequin until he got a closer look and the body was identified as Denise. And Denise at the time was known to be a sex worker. And her body was found only a half mile from the last location that she was seen at. These deaths continued across the country until about the late 90s. I only named a few because there were just so many women coming up strangled from LA all the way across New Orleans. And sadly, many of these women were Black Jane Doe's who did not even have a proper death date to go by. Just scrolling through their list, there was just one after another in which the name was just unnamed Black female. And if there was a name, it would be a nickname or just a first name. And despite all this, despite that all these women were the same class, many were suspected prostitutes, and they all died of strangulation. Despite this, police just did not make a connection. All the women that I talked about previously, besides Carol, were white. So there are dozens of Black Jane Doe's who we still don't even know the name of to this day. And these people's mothers and daughters and sisters are probably all just wondering where their loved one is and how they vanished. That is until 2012 when Samuel was arrested for a drug charge. By this time, he had to have his DNA profile entered into the system. And this is where things just blew up because though police knew that Samuel was a proven violent offender and most likely a murderer, they did not know him to commit other crimes after his release from jail in 1987. So it must have been a surprise to everyone when his DNA matched the DNA recovered from the murders of Carol Eileen Elford, Guadalupe Duarte Apodaca, and Audrey Nelson Everett. With the DNA match along with witness testimony, Samuel was found guilty and sent to prison for life with no parole. And the thing was, despite DNA evidence, Samuel continued to defend his innocence. And now it's time for a knitter mission. So today I am actually knitting. I don't usually knit when I'm recording by myself because it is easier to knit when I record with other people because then I can knit while they are talking or giving a point. It's just hard for me to knit and read the script and scroll and just keep track of sound. It's it's. It's a three, it's a one woman operation for a three woman job, but you know, I got it. And so that's why you don't always see me net. I don't always have a project at hand that I can 
knit without looking down or counting numbers. Usually I knit samples for my designs. And so there's just so many variables. What does it fit? How does it look? Whenever I knit a design, because if for those who don't know, if this is your first time listening, I design knitwear. So I come up with knitwear designs that I then turn into knitting patterns for people to make at home. So because of that, even though I tend to draw every design up and swatch and things like that, I still just stare at every design for possibly like an hour a day. I probably spend just staring at my knitting, trying to figure out if I like it. And so Because it's such a visual process, I usually do not knit on camera or else I will be looking down and stopping throughout the entire script trying to figure out if I like my project or not. And I do end up frogging them because one minute I'll decide I don't like it and then the next morning I'll wake up and be like, you know what, maybe I shouldn't have frogged it. So it's just easier for me not to design it. And then I don't always just have a mindless knit on me. I I don't know why. I mean, I probably do in my thousands of whips that probably have been being worked on for years now. But you know, it is what it is. I have a million whips and hopefully I'll be able to finish one of them. <laughs> so today I am working on my rainbow gain. I'm almost done with the test knit. Thank you, test knitters. And it is amazing. And a story came out with the rainbow gan in my test knit. So when I was inspired to knit the rainbow gan, and I'm going to put it on because even though I'm sweating and my glasses are fogging up from all these lights and just being a hormonal just being a hormonal lady. I'm just gonna put this on. So when I first came up with the rainbow again, it was around Pride Month and I wanted to knit something with rainbows. And I didn't want it to just be about Pride Month because I felt like the appreciation for pride and the acceptance of everyone's sexuality just shouldn't be confined to a month. And also I knew I could, I, I, it was already Pride Month. So I knew I couldn't bang this out as a quality pattern by the end of the month. So I decided to just make it a rainbow gin that can be adapted and is encouraged to be worn during Pride. But it's also can just reflect anything. For example, I love rainbows as a person just because of I've recently, well, not recently, my rainbow baby is now two years old. And a rainbow baby is a baby that you have after a loss. So I always loved rainbows after having my son, Bo. And so that's why I, I tend to wear them. My room is very bright. It's just important to me to celebrate the fact that I had the privilege to be a biological mother. And so that's why I really like rainbows. I tend to put it into things like that. But then I also appreciate it for Pride Month. And um, I also like that then you can put, you could customize it to put your 
to put whatever pride flag that you identify as in the sweater yoke. And for those who can't see the sweater, I probably should have described this before. It is a cardigan with a circular yoke that in the entire yoke is rainbow. And the pattern gives you tips on how to arrange different color combinations and that you don't have to make a rainbow. You can use any scrap yarn you have, or you could use a multicolor skein of yarn that transitions to different colors. There's just so many things that you can do with this pattern. And that's pretty much the whole point of the rainbow again, is that you can make it whatever color that you feel like expresses you. And that's why this pattern means so much to me. You know, it's a rainbow. It's fun. It is not like a chic design. I tend to do very like classic designs that are relevant to our time. But this time I just wanted something cozy. I want to knit a best friend that I can pop on when my office is super cold because I sit in front of this window with not a lot of heat and because this is an old house. And so it just meant a lot to me to put on a sweater that I identified with and that was special to me, especially with it being hand knit. And it was important for me to then create a sweater that you can personalize and make it special for you, whether you're celebrating pride or you are celebrating having your first child or whether or not you want to put like your favorite colors, your child's favorite colors. There was this woman who I follow who puts a stripe of her sister's favorite color in her sweater, like in everything that she knits, or at least in, I think in every sweater that she knits as like a memory, you know, like color shapes our lives and just picking a color that's meaningful and allowing that color to give you a hug. I just found that very special. Um, so that's what the rainbow again is all about. I know it's you're like, what is wrong with her? It's just a sweater. It is never just a sweater for me. It is always, always an experience, especially when we are knitting it with our hands. Sometimes like my designs are just, oh, I want to make us like a uh, fun, sexy top. And then my design is just like, and this is me. And this is my soul. And here it is. So yeah, it's just really personal. And I love that my test knitters really took that and ran with it. And I really appreciate that. And I cannot wait to see what you guys come up with. I believe I am releasing this sweater at the end of this month. I'm saying believe because I don't have my trusty schedule, my agenda right in front of me. I have the date. I just don't have the date off the top of my head right now. And this whole month has been a jumble of dates with work and mom stuff and life. And so I just can't remember. But yes, it should be the end of this month as I'm trying to release a pattern every month. Wish me luck on that. And I've been getting questions about when I'll be having guests. I hope to have guests at the last half of this season. Every season is about 10 episodes. And so maybe the fifth episode on I you may see some really cool people joining me virtually 
In 2017, Texas Ranger James Holland was teaching a class on interrogation at a conference in Tampa, Florida. Another officer came to Holland with a problem. He suspected that a man named Samuel Little, who traveled around the U.S. throughout his life, may be connected to one of his cold cases in Florida and possibly even more cold cases around the country. The officer wanted some tips from James about how to approach Samuel for an interrogation. And before I continue, I just want to take a moment and just say, you know, this is some solid police work on this officer's part, you know, to ask for help from a specialist rather than just go in there and botch the interrogation, which happens quite often in the past and we will see a botched interrogation at the end of this so it happens and i really like you know how he asked for help from a specialist so anyway james became interested in interviewing samuel himself and so he went to his own resource, the FBI Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. These specialized FBI analysts tracked and gained intel on violent crime, such as sexual assaults and murders. The Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, also known as VICAP, gives law enforcement across the U.S. access to a database where they can input violent crimes, whether they are confirmed or suspected. Then the FBI can analyze key factors about this crime, such as location, victim stats, dates, and things like that. So that way they connect any similarities to a perpetrator. VICAP is the resource that police officers go to when they are trying to track a serial killer. So with the help of VICAP, James uncovered more chilling info about Samuel. First, it was discovered that his real name was actually Samuel McDowell. Secondly, they were able to connect 12 potential victims to Samuel, all of which were in Texas. And so... I guess at this time, they were just looking at Texas victims because James is a Texas Ranger. One of the victims was a prostitute in Odessa, Texas, named Denise Christie Brothers. Yes, the same Denise that was found murdered in a Coca-Cola bottling plant parking lot in 1994. So James flew out to jail in Lancaster, California, where he was able to interview Samuel. Though Samuel wasn't interested in helping law enforcement, James did his homework and... With the help of VICAP, he found a way to earn Samuel's trust. First, he knew that Samuel did not consider himself a rapist, so he made sure to appeal to that. He then started to ask Samuel about his interest in art and boxing and college football, but just none of this was working. And so James decided to back that up a little bit and ask him what he, Samuel, liked to be called. And Samuel said that everyone called him Sam, but his mother called him Sammy. And James just grasped at this because he was able to say that his own mother called him Jimmy. After this, Samuel became more willing to talk. James asked him if he ever been to Midland or Odessa, Texas. Surprisingly, Samuel said no to Midland, but admitted to being in Odessa, Texas. 
However, he did not want to say more because he didn't want to get the death penalty, which is side note. This is crazy to me because this guy is 72 at this time. And we all know it takes forever for someone on death row to make it to the execution. So chances are he would die before he be executed. But anyway, because he was too afraid to admit to anything more, James quickly promised right then and there that Samuel will be exempt from lethal injection if he spoke the truth. And he promised to tell the world that, quote, Samuel Little is not a rapist. Because if you remember, Samuel was still maintaining his innocence in the courtroom. And it is believed that he truly did not see himself as a rapist, despite the fact that DNA evidence showed that he strangled women for sexual gratification. Feeling safe from slander and the death penalty, Samuel confessed to the strangulation of a prostitute in a vacant parking lot in Odessa. At that moment, James realized that Samuel was confessing to the strangulation of Denise Christie brothers. From there, with lots of coddling from James, Samuel began to open up about his past and he began to talk a lot. And you can read a detailed report of these transcripts by a wonderful article done by LA Times, linked in my sources. But holy crap, did this man talk. And he began to describe his victims. James talked about his first and last murder, but he also said that he did not know how many he had killed and he stopped counting at 84 homicides. After receiving an official immunity from the death penalty, after receiving an official immunity from the death penalty, Samuel began to freely talk about his murders. And side note, he got like his immunity in a letter from a judge and he actually asked James to take a picture of him holding it as if it was just some amazing trophy. But I just found that so bizarre. Anyway, Samuel had many stories, and though he often got confused with timelines and names, over time, the FBI was able to confirm over 60 homicides so far, with more still under investigation. James worked really hard to gain Samuel's trust, and it seems as if the key was to act as if he actually cared for Samuel. He would bring him breakfast to his cell, and they will chit-chat like they were old friends. And I don't know how James wasn't gagging through all this, because I would 100% be sick or either punch him or both. But James, who obviously was more trained in this than the rest of us, says when he talks of Sam, the man is an absolute genius. He has a sickness. He doesn't know why. And I don't know why. End quote. At one point, James asked Samuel if he could paint his victims. Because remember, Samuel had an interest in painting. And Samuel agreed to do this. And so they set up a painter studio in his cell and they equipped him with watercolors and acrylic paint and pastels. And with these, Samuel created some very realistic portraits of his victims that were so accurate that they actually assisted in identifying these victims. Samuel confessed to 93 murders. And as of the recording of this podcast, 
Again, only over 60 of these have been confirmed. So we are about a third of the way there to confirming these confessions. And at this point is somewhat believed that he was telling the truth just because we're so far in and we're seeing some evidence. It is suspected that Samuel's first murder took place on December 31st, 1970, with the victim being Mary Jo Brosley. Samuel met Mary Jo at a Miami bar on New Year's Eve. Mary Jo left with Samuel in his car and they drove to a secluded area towards the Everglades. When her body was found 23 days later, she remained a Jane Doe until 2007 when she was identified via her dental records. We know even less about Samuel's supposed last victim, who he only remembers as Anne, and her death may have taken place in 1997 in Phoenix, Arizona. All that we have left of Anne is a sketch done by her killer, and we don't even know if she really existed. And how horrible is that? Is that the last person to keep your memory alive? is your killer. It's just tragic. And I don't know. I just feel bad for the women that, especially the ones that all we have to confirm their existence and their death is a painting done by a creep. On December 30th, Samuel Little died of natural causes at the ripe old age of 80 in a cozy hospital in California. But the story just can't end with his death. Today, the FBI actually have compiled a list of all of the unidentified victims that Samuel had sketched in hopes that people can identify them just from their sketch and whatever stats that Samuel remembers about them. The public had already helped to identify 16 of these women, so there is a chance that someone out there can give a name to a face and bring a lot of closure to families just across the U.S., for example, a Jane Doe that was found in 1977, known as the Escatapa Jane Doe, was actually identified using DNA evidence as Clara Burlong in 2020. They are still working to give a name to these women and girls. There was also one male victim, a Florida man named Jerry Townsend, who I guess you can say he's an unintentional victim because he served 22 years for the murder of 17-year-old Dorothy Gibson. Jerry has an IQ of 58, and he was coerced into a false confession for six homicides. He was clearly coerced as he said he beaten Dorothy when her body was strangled, not beaten. Luckily, he was finally released in 2001 when DNA evidence exonerated him from all six crimes. But this was only after he spent 22 years of his life in jail. And yes, Dorothy Gibson was a victim of Samuel Little as well. And so Samuel Little just let a man sit in jail for 22 years. He probably didn't even know or cared 
to know. Even now, families are coming forward, wondering if their missing loved ones may have died at the hands of Samuel. In 2017, the family of Lutricia and Smith Thompson wanted to know if she was a potential victim. She was last seen on September 1st, 1988, when she was on her way to meet up with friends in Pascagoula, Mississippi. When she didn't return, her family became worried because she had just given birth to a baby a few weeks ago. So she was in a very vulnerable position and her body was still recovering. Her family did the right thing and reported her disappearance to the police. However, the police never opened an investigation for her. Yes, they never opened an investigation for a new mother that could have been bleeding out, passed out anywhere. And here's the thing, Lutricia's case is still unsolved. And though her family believes that she was most likely murdered by Samuel, they will, in the end, never truly know. And that's the terrible thing of it all. With Samuel only being identified as a murderer decades later, a lot of these missing cases may never be found. It is possible that Latricia is just one of the dozens of Black Jane Does that are thought to be connected to Samuel. And we just may never know. And I wonder if they investigated her crime, maybe possibly she would already been connected to a Jane Doe if she was in fact a victim of Samuel. We just may never know. My name is Sophia Talley and this was True Crime and Knit. For more information, including photos and sources, please visit www.thedrunkmitter.com slash truecrime. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.